How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everybody can make sure you're in fellowship and ready to focus on the study of the word this evening. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much that we can come to you in prayer as we face all of the different challenges and difficulties, adversities in life. We have joy in many things, but our ultimate joy comes from you because we understand your plan, your purpose. We understand who you are, and we rely upon the promises of your word. And it is when we rely upon those promises that we are at rest and can relax in life that no matter what happens around us, We know that you're in control. Father, we pray for this nation, especially as we wind down this election season. We pray that there might be a victory at the polls for those who stand for biblical values. So in this election, we have uh, two men, one who claims to be a Christian but does not have Christian values, and one man who is not a Christian but a member of a theological cult, and yet he holds to biblical values. So the issue is not a person's eternal destiny, but their capability to solve the problems that we face in this nation. Not too different from uh, seeking someone who can repair your car when you have a problem. You want somebody who has the skills to repair the problem, and their eternal destiny is not the, the major issue. Father, we pray for this country that we might have men and women elected to public office that seek to solve the problems of this nation without sacrificing the Constitution. Men and women who will have integrity, men and women who will uh, vote for the future of this nation and not for its transformation into something different from its founding vision. Father, we pray for us as believers that no matter which way things go, we know that our real freedom is in Christ Our hope is in you, and the only source of stability is your word, and that we might hold fast to the word of life and never let go. And we pray that you would guide us in our thinking this evening and help us to understand the wonders of the spiritual life that you've given us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One other announcement that uh, didn't didn't come to my mind when we got... uh, we got started is that this afternoon at about four o'clock, for those of you who have Logos Bible software, Logos 5 came out. Did you get it? The great thing about Logos 5 is that files are now shareable. That means that many people out there who have been diligently taking notes and transcripts and linking these to uh, the biblical passages where I have taught this material can now share those files. This opens up a tremendous opportunity for uh, people to um, do different things. I mean, we have one man, Art Booz, who's done just tremendous things, and he, is, he has worked numerous files, structures, and provided the transcripts. Uh, so that you turn to Galatians 2.16, and you'll see the transcript of what I taught on that passage. You go to Hebrews 4.16, 4.12, you'll find the transcript for what I taught. And that's all there, and it's all shareable. Some of that's been available before, but now in a much more, uh, in a much greater way than, than ever before. And there are people who use the notes and use those transcripts within Lagos, uh, in ways that that go far beyond anything that 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 I've ever foreseen or envisioned. So this is really a a tremendous step forward, and I just had time to download it this afternoon and get the upgrade, and have not had time to investigate any of the uh, any of these other advancements. But it is a a tremendous step forward, and I'll be using it. I'm sure if things are the way they say they are. I'll use it. I, I rarely use it when I when I teach, just because of the 
the setup and everything. It's not the uh, best thing for uh, teaching, like just putting it into a, a PowerPoint or keynote presentation. So I usually don't go directly to it. I think I've only done it one time. But uh, there may be some good visuals now that uh, will enhance that. So for those of you, and we've had a lot of people over the last three or four years since Art first put those notes out there and made them available who have picked up Logos just for the purpose of having access to those notes, and now it's going to go to a, a new and uh, higher level. Okay, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, just briefly tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And the reason we're here is because this is part of a broader study a broader study wherein we are looking at the relationship of the law to grace as taught in the New Testament, specifically by the Apostle Paul, but also by the writer of Hebrews, by Peter, by others who have addressed this issue of law versus grace. And it's it's one of those things that really hasn't been um, thoroughly understood. Uh, both by those who would uh, agree with us in our basic theological framework and those who don't. And in this era where we have a lot of new ideas and scholarship, some good, some not so good, it uh, just goes way beyond the amount of time I have in my life to look at all the new literature that's been written on this topic in just the last 10 years. It's, it's just amazing uh, what has come out. But we don't always have to read everything that somebody writes as long as we understand what the Scripture says. And the Scripture really isn't that difficult. It's very clear. Now, some of the things I pointed this out in the last two lessons, some of the ways I'm handling and focusing on some of these passages may be a little different from how you've heard some of these passages taught. And that's because uh, I think on some of these passages, especially the chapter we're in here in Second uh, Corinthians 3, I've been a little fuzzy, and that's not unlike what I discovered some uh, some 12 or 14 years ago when I was approaching a study of John, uh, chapter 13, with the, or excuse me, John chapter 15 with the abiding in Christ metaphor, and I went back and listened to several different people who I had uh, studied under in the past and read a lot of different material and realized that that there was not a lot of clarity in why John 15 was not talking about salvation, but was only talking about the Christian life. Now, it seems very clear now, uh, but in the 60s and 70s, the issues related to the free grace gospel and all of its ramifications uh, and how that impacted the upper room discourse were not as clear. And so a lot of times people said one thing, then five paragraphs later they said something else, uh, one of which fit with the free grace gospel and one of which didn't. So that's one of the fascinating things about the Word of God, which should always excite us, is that there's so much to learn. We think we have a real handle on some things and then uh, only to come to realize that maybe not. It's not that we were that wrong, but we can always get a greater, tighter focus on what the Word says. And the principle, though, is clear that the age of the law ended. What was provided for believers in the age of the law, in the dispensation of the law in the age of Israel, to be more precise, was very little for the individual believer. He didn't have a, he didn't have the power of the sin nature broken, which is broken only in our identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was a, a clearly a new thought for me, a new thought for many of you, to realize that in our study of Romans chapter 6. Then to build on that and to come to understand that they don't have the indwelling of the Spirit at all, and we knew that. They have regeneration, but what comes with regeneration isn't the same thing that comes with regeneration today. And guess what? What we get with regeneration today isn't what is going to come with regeneration in the millennial kingdom. They're going to get more under what is called the new covenant, which is what I'm going to look at uh, this evening, and we may go into another Bible class on it just to help clarify it because there's this, this connection between when the new covenant comes into effect, when it is fully here, not that it's partially here now, but some people teach that, but when it is enacted, 
We know from those passages it's the covenant is made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The new covenant is has a heavy Jewish flavor to it. It is not what we're experiencing today. And yet when I was a student at Dallas Seminary back in the 70s and even reading uh, men who wrote in previous generations, uh, I'm not going to mention any names because I'm not sure who taught what, at that point that I read, it was often thought that and said that in some sense the New Covenant went into effect on the day of Pentecost. And that the problem with that is it means that in some sense the kingdom would have come in and there was some spiritualization of these terms in terms of the church age. And yet as we go through our thinking on as dispensationalists, we realize that dispensationalism emphasizes a consistent, literal interpretation of Scripture. And to allegorize or spiritualize anything, even if it's the new covenant and the kingdom, is to compromise on a basic foundational principle that we always interpret literally. Now, that's a question, that's an issue that has often been misunderstood. Literal interpretation doesn't mean a, a wooden or an artificial type of interpretation. It doesn't deny the use of figures of speech, but figures of speech have literal meanings. They're just a, an idiom so that when somebody is, um, uh, so, somebody, let's say, uh, is tells somebody to go jump in the lake, that is a, we don't literally mean for them to go jump in the lake, but that idiom to jump in the lake has a a literal meaning, and that is to go away, to leave, to that, that whatever it is that you're saying is irrelevant and nonsense. So you need to leave and and not be involved in the conversation anymore. So even though it's an idiom, it has a specific meaning. You can't just uh, assign any meaning to that idiom. You talk to one person. When you talk to another person, they're all going to assign the same meaning to that idiom. That's a lockdown figurative meaning. So when we talk about literal interpretation, we use that, that kind of meaning. Now, that's important because a lot of modern religious talk is allegorical. You go to many different churches, Roman Catholic churches, Lutheran churches, uh, some Presbyterian churches, uh, Episcopal churches, you will find a lot of spiritualization and allegorization taking place in the sermons because it's nice to take a hist- an event in the Bible and then you try to universalize it to apply to people and then people think it's something that's relevant to their lives. But because you've sacrificed its original literal historical grammatical integrity, it's not really relevant because what you're applying isn't what the text said. So it's important to understand that. And one of my favorite quotes I ran across several years ago was when Justice of the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, was speaking to a group of judges in New York City at at a law conference, and he made the statement that if you don't interpret the law, the Constitution, in light of the original intent of the writers of the Constitution, then you're just making it up. And that was just so simple. And that's exactly what happens every Sunday morning in 90% of the churches in this country probably, maybe more, maybe 95% of the churches in this country, is that without paying attention to the writer's original intent and really digging into the Scripture to understand its original meaning, its, its uh, literal meaning, you're just making it up. And so people go to churches week after week, and they hear a pastor just sort of make up what they want the Bible to say. And when you get into passages like the one we're in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where we're talking about the letter of the law, and we're talking about the Spirit, and we're talking about that which is written in stone, that which is by the Spirit, then this has lent itself to a certain amount of of uh, non-literal or allegorical interpretation. And yet this passage, in fact, this passage is one that is often uh, gone to by 
people to support the idea of a non-literal interpretation, and they will misquote uh, from this passage that, well, the letter kills, but the Spirit makes alive. So let's not interpret the Bible literally. Let's do it according to the Spirit, as if the Spirit is some sort of um, uh, wishy-washy, here it means one thing, there it means another thing kind of influence on the writers, uh, writers of Scripture. So we have to understand that, that, first of all, this passage isn't talking about uh, interpretation. It's not giving us a, a basis for interpretation. But what it is talking about is that there's a contrast between the law, that is, what was given to Moses, and what is given to church-age believers. And what was given to Moses was something that was temporary. It was not permanent. And what is given in the church age is permanent. And the distinction is that uh, that in the law, while the absolutes of God were, were revealed, God doesn't provide a means within the individual believer to fulfill the, the law. But in the New Testament period, he does provide a way whereby the believer can fulfill the law. And so that leads to life. This is what is meant as we look at the sixth verse that the letter kills. It kills because all the law does is bring judgment and the Spirit makes alive because with God the Holy Spirit we can experience the fullness the fullness of life. So just uh, let me just bump up here to verse 6 that God made us sufficient. He gave us the ability, that's the sense of this particular word in the Greek, ikanos, means to be able or to be competent. Now, that's a little bit different idea than the idea that you have, for example, over in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where God tells uh, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. There you have the word uh, archeo, which has to do with the idea that it is enough. Here the emphasis is on its ability to uh, enable someone to accomplish the task. So God has made us sufficient. He's given us competence as ministers of the new covenant, and that's that word diakonos. So Paul is talking specifically about the apostles, but I think it has application to pastors, to anyone who is proclaiming the uh, death of Christ, and remember Jesus said in the uh, in the <clears throat> in the Last Supper when he took the third cup of of uh, wine, the cup called the cup of redemption, according to the Jewish tradition, he said, "This is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me." So what Jesus is saying there is that the, the what happens with his sacrifice is that that establishes the basis for the new covenant. Covenants are established with a sacrifice. But that did not bring the new covenant into, enact the new covenant. And we learned that from looking at other passages, which is what I want to do uh, this evening. So as we look at these these few verses here, <clears throat> that Paul is saying that, God made us sufficient, or he gave us the ability. So he's recognizing that the ability that we have as pastors, as apostles, as ministers of the gospel, and that would be anybody who's proclaiming the gospel, that our ability isn't based on who we are. It's not based on human factors. Now, God can use those human factors, but it's not based on or limited by human factors. It's not based on education. There have been some wonderful pastors and theologians who have had great influence in their generation, men, uh, for example, like Charles Haddon Spurgeon in England in the 19th century and uh, had no formal training, not much formal education, but he had a powerful impact on England and with the spread of the British Empire throughout the British Empire. You had men like Lewis Berry Chafer who did not know Greek or Hebrew at all, yet he understood that his ability to handle the Word of God would have been much better 
if he had known the original languages. So he founded a seminary that would emphasize uh, the, the original languages and the importance of knowing Greek or Hebrew. Just because people do well without knowing certain things does not mean that should be the standard. And sadly, in our tradition and in the tradition of many evangelicals, the high standard of education has been dumbed down uh, tremendously in this last generation. Uh, There are a number of different reasons for that, but we have to hold the standard high. We have to maintain an attitude of excellence. That doesn't mean that you can't function as a pastor and that God can't bless you if you haven't studied hard, if you haven't got the formal education, if you don't know the original languages. But you're limited. And the better the education, the better the training, the more opportunity a person has and there are ways in which God can use them that they can't be used otherwise. But ultimately, it's God that gives that ability. This is what Paul emphasizes. It's God who gives us sufficiency as ministers. It's not based on our IQ. It's not based on where we went to seminary. It's not based on how many degrees we have. Ultimately, none of those are the determinative factor, though they are all uh, very important. The sufficiency, the ability, the competence comes from the Holy Spirit as we minister the new covenant. Now, that's the connection here. We're ministers of the new covenant, which means that we are announcing something. We're announcing God's plan for human history, that the that sin has been paid for, that we're in the church age, and where we're headed down the road is to the kingdom. It's not here now, but it's down the road. Now, there are some that teach that it's already here, but not yet fully. So sometimes that's called the already-not-yet view. There are non-dispensational premillennialists who hold that view. There are uh, dispensationalists, for example, at Dallas Seminary, who hold a view called progressive dispensationalists. And I always liked what Bruce Waltke said. I don't know how they came up with this. It's neither progressive nor dispensational. In fact, when Bruce Waltke, who had defected from dispensational theology a couple of decades before this, uh, first read about it, he said, well, they've just become amillennial covenant theologians and don't know it and don't want to admit it, which means that they have shifted away from so far away from a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture that they were beginning to interpret key Scripture just the way amillennialists interpreted those those scriptures, focusing on some sort of spiritual kingdom. Now, that spiritual sense of a kingdom is often related to some uh, present application, or not application, but present enactment of the new covenant. But what we see in scripture is the new covenant is clearly characterized by certain things that are not true today. Now, there are some things that are similar, but similar isn't identical. Similar isn't identical. It's just similar. So what I want to do is take a little time to look at that. We look at verse 6. We see there were ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, and that refers to the, to the law, to the Mosaic law, uh, but of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. So it's not of the letter, which didn't give the ability to obey, but of the Spirit, who now indwells every believer, identifies every believer with the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that from the instant of salvation, the power of the sin nature is dead, and you are given new life. The letter kills. All it can do is point out judgment and failure, but the Spirit gives life. Then verse 7 says, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, notice now he moves from the letter kills to the ministry of death. That's the Mosaic law, written and engraved on stones. Now, that doesn't mean that the Mosaic law was bad. Remember, Paul said it's holy and just and good. But it didn't give life. It wasn't a means of salvation and it didn't give the new life that comes from the Holy Spirit. That's why there had to be a new covenant. 
If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So what in these three verses, 6, 7, and 8, there is the contrast between the letter and the Spirit. There is a, an implied contrast between the new covenant and the old covenant, although the old covenant isn't mentioned here, only the new, and a contrast between the glory, and there was a clear glory associated with the Mosaic law, and the greater glory of the new covenant and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we need to look at, at kind of a, a, both of these images from the Old Testament quickly before I go into the New Covenant so it'll make a little more sense. I want you to turn in the Old Testament with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. <clears throat> Exodus is the second book in the Pentateuch. The first five books are, the book, uh, are called the Pentateuch, five scrolls. And in Exodus chapter 34, we have a description of Moses' uh, ministry. This is after the rebellion of the Israelites, when Moses was initially up on Mount Sinai. And at that point, they came down the mountain, and he heard the sound of uh, revelry, sound of an orgy going on down there, and they had convinced uh, Aaron to melt down a lot of the gold and silver and the and to make an, uh, a, uh, a golden calf for them to worship. So they'd slid right back into idolatry. Moses got mad, broke the tablets. So this is a replacement of the tablets. And let's just start at verse, let's see, the verse I have up on the screen starts in verse 29, but I want to go a little bit earlier than this just to pick up a little context. Let's go back to verse uh, 10. God speaking, we read, and God said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do. And so God establishes the principle that he's the one who's going to provide for Israel. He's the one who is sufficient for them. That's a parallel to what's going on in, in 2 Corinthians 3. God's the one who ultimately does the work, but that didn't mean that Israel didn't go to battle. But they did. They went to battle, but God's the one who gave them the, gave them, uh, the victory. And so the following verses talk about how God is going to give them victory over the enemies and uh, what some of those restrictions were going to be and the promise that God... Uh, that God makes. For example, down in verse 24, he promises, I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. By the way, this is a promise by God that he will enlarge their borders. A few years ago, there was a book that came out called The Prayer of Jabez. And this was mentioned a rather obscure passage in Chronicles about Jabez, who was in the conquest generation, and he was praying that God would expand his inheritance. And there were people going around saying, this is how you pray. You just cite it over and over again like a mantra. And what they missed was that all Jabez was doing was asking for more real estate, that's all it was. He was taking this promise of God to expand their borders and applying it in the conquest, saying that, Lord, I'm, I, we're obedient. You've blessed us. I'm just asking you to expand uh, the inheritance, which is what you promised. It was simple faith rest drill, and yet people today who should have known better because they were trained well, and had a history of writing well, should have known better. They spiritualized uh, that particular promise and made it something other than what it was. He just wanted more land. That's all there was to it. Now, after Moses was up on Sinai with the Lord, we're told in verse 28, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, 
and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, I pointed out before in terms of fasting that you can go three days, maybe four, depending on the circumstances, maybe uh, five, without water, but you need to drink after that. So this is clearly miraculous sustenance because he text clearly says he went 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking. You can go 40 days or 40 nights without eating, but after that you pretty much have to start eating very soon uh, or you will start having problems. So that part is not necessarily uh, miraculous, but the water part is. So that shows by including both that God miraculously sustained Moses during this period. It wasn't the fasting that was significant. What was significant is that God is revealing to him his word. And it's so important that there's no time for the mundane chores of life to eat and drink. And that's the significance in fasting. Fasting has no power in and of itself. It doesn't impress God that you go or I go hungry. The significance of fasting in the scripture is that something is so important that we are going to set aside time to pray. And in order to do that, uh, in the ancient world, especially in an agricultural society where it took a lot of time to prepare food, they didn't have microwave dinners. They could just drop in the microwave and heat up in two minutes and where the whole meal process took, could take less than three or four minutes. For In that culture, it took several hours. That would take your time and energy away from the focus of prayer. So this is why fasting was important, was because it showed what they were emphasizing and that there were more important things to do rather than take care of one's uh, physical desires to eat. So Moses is up on Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he came down in verse 29, we read, and this is the uh, verse I have up on the screen, It was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with God. So Moses is in the presence of God and his face shines. Now, we have a way of talking about this. We refer to it as the Shekinah glory. Now, the implication of that is that this is a particular kind of glory, but the word Shekinah is from the Hebrew word Shekhan, which means the dwelling presence of something. And the tabernacle, the word for the tabernacle in the Hebrew is Mishkan. You hear the S-H-K-N in that word. That's Shekhan, that's to dwell. So the dwelling place of God was the Mishkan. And... Um, uh, the this isn't a particular type of glory, just that the indwelling presence of God there, and when God is present, there's the effulgence of his essence, which is, is light shining forth, and it was so brilliant that it is as if it is absorbed and reflected by Moses' skin, so that as Moses leaves the presence of God, he doesn't ha- he has the golden glow he doesn't have the rosy glow he is just there's just this like light beaming off of his face and people could see it the problem is it wasn't permanent it's like kids that go off to camp now there's nothing wrong with kids or adults going off to camp and getting away from all of the everyday distractions of life and focusing on the word of god and frequently they come back and they realize maybe for the first time, maybe for the 50th time, that they need to straighten out some things in their life and focus on spiritual things. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is thinking that that experience is normative. One of the damaging consequences of that kind of thinking occurred back in the 60s and 70s. A lot of baby boomers went off to Christian camp during the summer, and as they grew up in high school, college, and young adult, they went off and they had great experiences. Nothing wrong with having a great time with other Christians studying the word. They came back and they wanted to have that every Sunday. But see, you can't have that every Sunday 
That's not what Sunday is like. That's not what the normal Christian life is. That's just an abnormal experience. And they sang different kinds of songs, and they had fun singing, and all of that's just great. I have great fun singing traditional hymns. And so they came back, and they wanted to have those kinds of camp songs inserted into what was going on on Sunday morning, clapping the hands and having a lot of physical jumping around or whatever, which is fun. And there's nothing wrong with singing fun songs. There's some great kid songs, some great songs for camp that, that are just fun. And there's nothing at all wrong with that. What's wrong is thinking that the emotions that are generated by that are what should be normative for the Christian life. And so you want to change up everything that goes on on Sunday morning so it can be that mountaintop camping camp experience every Sunday. And all that does is teach people to rely on their emotions and not on the word. So this was part of the problem here because when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he's got this glow and people are impressed. Moses has been with God. But as time went by, what we see in this story is that the glow faded just as that experience from camp or the retreat or whatever it is, just as that fades then people began to think, well, God's not really with me anymore. God's not really with Moses anymore. So let's read what happens. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked to them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them his commandments, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when he'd finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Now, why did he put a veil on his face? Because he didn't want the people to see the glow fade. Because if they saw the glow fade, then their enthusiasm, their commitment, everything would fade. But we're such fickle creatures. I don't care how straight we are on doctrine. We still have trouble uh, with emotion. So... Moses put a veil on his face, and then we're told that in verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. What was going on? Moses did not want the people to be distracted by emotion. Nothing wrong with emotion. I'm not saying that but it can be a terrible distraction in the Christian life. And one of the great tests in life is how we deal with emotion. Do we let emotion push us, motivate us to making bad decisions, making decisions that aren't wise, making foolish decisions because we're driven, uh, we're driven by emotion rather than the truth of God's word. And you can have great emotion when you're driven by the truth of God's word. It's not one or the other, but the issue is how do you respond and how are you going to let emotion uh, affect your decision-making process? So this becomes a major part of the last part of chapter 3. Start, if you look at verse 12 of uh, Second Timothy, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 3, we read that um, in, in verse 7, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, see, that's that glory that it's talking about. So the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit be not more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation, that's the law again, had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious that's the law, had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels, that is, the church age glory. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is more glorious. So the whole point through here is that we have something that is more glorious. If you think about, some people think, well, if we could just see something like that. Well, we have something better that's based on not seeing it. It's based on the testimony of God's word, and that's really all we need is the testimony of God's word. So all of this takes us to understanding something significant here that's mentioned in verse 6, and that is the new covenant. So let me just give you some basic summary principles on, on the new covenant. 
the new covenant is the eighth and final covenant in the new test in the old testament it's the fifth jewish covenant what was the first jewish covenant the abrahamic covenant then you have the land covenant and the davidic covenant and you have the uh, mosaic covenant and then the uh, then the new covenant so these were Jewish covenants because they are made between God and the Jewish people. Then you have the uh, Gentile covenants, the uh, uh, creation covenant, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant. Those were all Gentile covenants before God ever called out Abraham uh, and the Jewish, Jewish people. So and this is the fourth permanent covenant uh, for Israel, uh, related to Israel. So we have to understand something about what a covenant is. A covenant is a legally binding obligation of God to man. God enters into these covenants. Now, I'm not talking about non-biblical covenants, but the biblical covenants are all between God and man. It is a legally binding obligation. It is similar to a contract, but a covenant technically goes beyond a simple contract. But often we, we don't use covenant too much in our, uh, in our culture. So we use the uh, idea of a contract because that's familiar to everybody, but a covenant is really something, it's, it's a contract plus, you might say. It's more than a contract. So whatever's true of a contract is also true of a covenant, but even, even more so. So a covenant is, the biblical covenants are based upon the character of God. It's based upon God's pledge, His promise to fulfill certain promises, certain things to those who are included, the other, part, the other parties of the covenant. He's going to do certain things for them. He will bless them or he will bring judgment uh, upon them, and that's part of his solemn pledge, and he is legally bound by this contract. Now, that gives us great confidence and great hope because, and this is why the Old Testament often emphasizes God's love as his chesed love. Because chesed love is a love that is loyal and faithful. It doesn't change. He's not going to go back on that contract. And that becomes the foundation for understanding what real love is. Real love is something that is based on, on, on God's character. That's, human love can be based on God's character. It can't be based on your character or mine because that's pretty, uh, sometimes uh, pretty tenuous. But it's based ultimately on God's character. God is faithful. He is not going to go back on his word. And so you can count on him fulfilling those promises, and he's not going to, not going to change. So the third point is a covenant is a word for a legal contract or a covenant, and it is usually between the fourth point between two parties of equal stature, for example, husband and wife, or it can be between a superior and an inferior. For example, a king and a commoner or a king of a great nation and a king of a much lesser nation or between God and humans. So this is the idea. It's this legal binding. And God doesn't... Why does God do this? God, God enters into this so that, so that he, as it were... Uh, theologians use the word condescend. I don't like that word so much, but it sort of gives the idea that God is willing to limit himself to the framework of the creature in order to demonstrate to the creature his faithfulness. So God willingly limits himself in, in these ways to these, these finite structures such as a legal covenant. He doesn't have to do it. He does it willingly so that we can come to understand some things about him that would be pretty difficult to understand otherwise. Now, the Greek word, the fifth point, focuses on the Greek word for a contract or a compact. The Greek word for compact is the word syntheki, and um, a compact is like the Mayflower compact. These are all just slightly different ideas all related to a legally binding agreement between uh, two parties. The Greek word diatheke has the sense, uh, which the Hebrew word berit does not have, has a sense of a unilateral contract, 
A unilateral contract is when one person enters into, binds himself to a contract, and it's not dependent upon the action of the lesser party. So that a conditional covenant is when you say, if you are obedient, then I will do these things for you. But if you're not obedient, then I won't do these things for you. That's conditional. Uh, it's, it's bilateral because the party of the second part has to act a certain way in order to get the blessing from the party of the first part. So it's a bilateral. Two people are involved in bringing about the final, uh, final benefits of the contract. Whereas a unilateral, unit from one, like unicycle, uh, unilateral contract means that the one person guarantees the blessing, the promises of the contract without regard to the party of the second part. If they're disobedient or obedient, doesn't matter what their behavior is, the party of the first part is going to fulfill uh, his part of the contract. Uh, this word diatheke has this same sense in secular Greek use in, uh, in uh, Aristophanes' uh, play, The Birds. He used the word co- covenant where uh, two parties who had uh, overwhelming superiority over another uh, could dictate the terms. And so it's used in the same way that the Bible uses it. You have a superior person making a contract with someone who is of lesser significance and it is a unilateral uh, covenant. Uh, sixth point is that though covenants have often been categorized as unconditional and conditional, if you've been around very long and you've heard people teach on covenants and you've heard dispensationalists talk about the Abrahamic covenant as an unconditional covenant and the Mosaic covenant as a conditional covenant, then you're used to that kind of a language. But that's really not the best language because even the Abrahamic covenant has conditions that God said, I'm going to give you the land, but if you're not obedient, you're not going to enjoy the land. That's a condition. It's yours, but if you're not obedient, I'm not going to let you go into the land and enjoy it. That's a condition. So there are conditions even within uh, so-called unconditional covenants. So the best term is to refer to them as permanent covenants versus temporary covenants. God permanently promised the land to Israel. And the Abrahamic covenant is a never-ending eternal covenant. The new covenant is a never-ending eternal covenant. The Davidic covenant is a never-ending eternal covenant. But the Mosaic covenant was a temporary covenant. It was only designed for a short period of time, from the time God gave the law to Israel to the time that the Messiah would come and fulfill the law. And then it would be replaced by the new covenant. That's the whole argument of of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 8. The reason it's called um, the old covenant is because it would be superseded by a new covenant. So permanent and temporary are really the best words to describe these types of covenants. Seventh point is that the new covenant is the third permanent covenant with Israel based on the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant promised three things. If you went through the Genesis series, you know these, or at one time knew these, you you could dream about them, land, seed, and blessing. Okay? The land covenant is expanded in the real estate covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Uh, That's the real estate covenant. The Davidic covenant is expanded in 2 Samuel 7. That's the Davidic covenant dealing with the seed and God's promise of of a messianic king. And the new covenant fulfills the third part of the Abrahamic covenant, which is a blessing to all the peoples in the world, a spiritual blessing, and that comes through the, uh, through the new covenant. So the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant are all based on the Abrahamic covenant, and they're all permanent covenants. The eighth point is that it's, uh, the new covenant is an unconditional covenant, meaning that the fulfillment of the promise is not dependent upon human actions or human obedience. This is seen in uh, Ezekiel 36, 21 to 22. Although in the passage it is stated that their realization of the covenant is going to be related to their obedience, it is not their obedience that causes God to give them the covenant. God will give them the covenant, and that will give them a new heart and then they will be obedient to God. And, um, and then the ninth point is that uh, 
whereas most of the other covenants are material and national in nature, the land, the king, the throne. The new covenant is spiritual. It has to do with a change inside of the person. He is given a new heart, a new capacity, and he's given new capabilities. He's going to know the word intuitively so that there's no need for anybody to teach one another. Now, did that happen in Acts 2? No. See, none of these things have happened yet. They're, They're similar because God the Holy Spirit does some similar things in the church age to what he will do in the future kingdom, but they're not the same. And so just because they're similar, there are a lot of similarities between you and your next door neighbor. You have houses that are very, very similar in many ways. You have a mortgage or a lease that's identical 99.9% of the ways to your neighbors. They're, they're very close. But you're, just because your mortgage contract is 99.9 the same as your neighbors doesn't mean that he's obligated to your terms or you're obligated to his terms or that you can change your terms to fit his because, golly, his are better. doesn't work that way. So... Um, these these covenants are, are are distinct. Now, the new covenant is spiritual, not physical. And then last, the new covenant is everlasting in nature. It is permanent, just like the Abrahamic covenant, just like the uh, uh, land covenant, the Davidic covenant. They are all permanent. So as we look at this, we need to look at some of the Scripture. Now, that's a lot of Scripture up there, and I'll leave it up there for just a little bit. The key passage is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. That's the only passage that actually mentions the term new covenant. You might want to turn with me to Jeremiah 31, and we'll just look at those verses. It's um, four verses in the Old Testament. It's about six or seven the way it's broken down in Hebrews 8, I think. It just quotes this whole section. And I want to read it to you because it's so important to understand what it says. We pick up certain characteristics. God says to Israel, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, and maybe the church. That was a textual change. Just see if anybody's with me. It doesn't mention the church. It's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, there have been dispensationalists in the past who have tried to claim on the basis of the mention of new covenant in in 2 Corinthians 3 that there's a new covenant with the church, but it never says that. The new covenant is with the house of Judah and the house of Israel, and it has application to Gentiles, just as Abrahamic covenant was with between God and Abraham and had application to the Gentiles. Just because it has application to the church doesn't mean there's a covenant with the church. It's very different. So God says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Now, basically when he says in the day, he's not talking about in the 24-hour period that they came out. He's talking about at that time period. That's when he brought them out of Egypt, and where did he take them? He took them to Mount Sinai. And what was the covenant that he gave them at Mount Sinai? It was the Mosaic covenant. So he's contrasting the new covenant with the Mosaic covenant. That's where it gets its identification, new versus the old. The new covenant's not going to be like that covenant. That is what is stated in the Old Testament in Jeremiah. He says, uh, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. They, they, Israel broke the covenant. In verse 33, he says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So in, it's talking about the future. There will be a covenant after those days. What are those days? This is that time period of what we call the tribulation, the time period of of, uh, Jacob's wrath, the time period of discipline on Israel. After that, God says he will make this covenant with Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, this is just basic, basic Uh, hermeneutics, that means basic Bible interpretation. 
This is my covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. That's your basic statement. Then he says, I will put my law. Who is my? Who does that first person singular pronoun refer to? That refers to God. I'm going to get really basic here because we stumble over the ABCs. I will put my law, whose law? It's God's law, in their heart, their minds. Who is the there? To whom does that pronoun refer? It refers to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It refers to the Jews. He's not talking about the church here. He's going to put it in their minds, and he's going to write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Is that happening today? No. Did that happen in A.D. 33 on the day of Pentecost? No. Is God writing writing, uh, or putting his law in anybody's mind? like this, and writing it on their hearts like this now? No, he's not doing that to church-age believers either. We have to learn it. We have to study it. We forget it. Now we have to go back and read it again, learn it. We have to listen over and over and over again to thousands of hours of Bible teaching, and finally it penetrates our, our, our dense little brains and hearts. God doesn't write it there for us. Now, in some sort of extended sense, he does, because God the Holy Spirit teaches us, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about something much different than the normal process we experience. And that's expanded in the next verse. In the next verse says, and it says, not only does God put it in their hearts and write it on, I'm putting their minds right on their hearts. He'll be their God. They'll be my people. Who does my people refer? To whom does that refer? Israel. That it's not in effect today. It's not happening. It hasn't happened yet at all in history. Then verse 34, he says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Is, is that true today, that nobody has to teach anybody else? You flunk if you say yes. Today we have witnessing. We have pastor teachers. We have evangelists. But in this scenario, because the word is implanted and there's this intuitive spiritual knowledge of the truth, there's no need whatsoever to tell your neighbor, well, you remember what the law says because you know he remembers. It's written on his heart. He can't forget it, and neither can you. And everybody knows it, and you don't need to tell your neighbor, I told you so. Why don't you pay attention? You didn't go to church the other day. Well, you don't have to go. You already know it. It's there. For they shall, no man is going to need to teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, God says, from the least of them to the greatest of them, from those who dropped out of school in the third grade to those who have triple PhDs. They'll all know it. The least or the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, that's an important phrase there at the end of verse 34, and it's a phrase that's picked up in other passages. For example, in Isaiah chapter 54, Isaiah chapter 61, these are passages that talk about God's forgiveness of Israel's sins in the millennial kingdom. So what this tells us is a unique Role of, of the Holy Spirit of the Spirit in the in the um, when the um, when the new covenant goes into effect, a unique knowledge of the Word of God when the new covenant goes into effect, a unique permanent national forgiveness of Israel when the new covenant goes into effect, and that this applies to everybody across all social social economic uh, indicators. So it goes on to say, verse 35, This is the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon, stars for a light by night. Notice it grounds this in creation. If God isn't the creator the way the Bible describes him as being the creator, then there's no foundation for these covenants. He gives the sun for a light by day, ordinance of the moon, the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves for the Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances, that is the sun and the moon and the stars, if these ordinances depart from before me, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. So here he introduces the concept of the nation Israel. So 31 to 34 is all talking about the nation Israel. This is a national promise. 
So what we see here from coming out of this verse, we'll look at a couple of these others later on, is that the new covenant is between God as the party of the first part, the superior one, and the house of Judah and the house of Israel on the second. Its importance is that it provides for the national regeneration of Israel in the millennial kingdom, not just as individuals. Now, why do I say that? Because think about this. We went through Revelation. How many years did we study Revelation? How many years have we gone through prophecy? What happens at the midpoint of the tribulation? This is a quiz. Midpoint of the tribulation, what happens? The Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies. What does he do in the Holy of Holies? He sets up his he, he sets up in there to be worshipped, and then he puts his image in the Holy of Holies. And then what does he do? Then he starts persecuting the Jews. What did Jesus say when that happens? He said, when you see this sign, you flee to the mountains. Woe to the woman who is pregnant and, and who is with child. This is, this, is a, this is the sign. When the Antichrist goes into the, into the Holy of Holies, then it's time to leave. Now, who's going to listen to Jesus and leave? Is it going to be the, the cynical, skeptical, agnostic Jews or the Jews that have said, hey, Jesus is really the Messiah? Who's going to leave Jerusalem when that happens? Who's going to pay attention to Jesus? Jewish believers. And they're going to get out of Dodge in a hurry. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the mountains. So if they're listening to Jesus and they're obeying Jesus and they're saved, are they regenerated? Yes. They're regenerated. They're new creatures in Christ. I'm not sure if the baptism of the Holy Spirit will apply. Other aspects of the church age don't, so the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't, but they're going to be regenerate. Is this before the new covenant comes into effect? Yeah, two, three years before the new covenant comes into effect. So the regeneration that happens when the new covenant goes into effect to the Jews that are going into the kingdom isn't regeneration per se. It is the regeneration of the nation. It is this new national regeneration and a new national distinction uh, related to these individual believers. The best analogy I have is Old Testament believers, like we'll, we'll get to them later on in Acts, Acts 19, the disciples of John the Baptist. They show up in Ephesus where Paul is. Paul says, with whose baptism were you baptized? They said, John the Baptist. Are they Old Testament saints? Yes. But they have a limited spiritual life. They haven't, they haven't experienced the baptism of Jesus and the baptism by the Spirit yet. They haven't heard the, anything about Jesus. They're Old Testament saints with that limited spiritual life. And then when they get saved because they hear the gospel, they're already saved, but when they hear the gospel, they shift from believing an Old Testament presentation to a church age completed a Christ-oriented presentation of the gospel, and at that point they get a whole new spiritual life. That's what's going to happen with those Jewish believers who flee to the mountains during the tribulation. They're regenerated, and they are um, they have a certain enhancement in their spiritual life. But then, when Jesus returns and establishes the new covenant, they're going to go from uh, zero to a hundred in. 0.2 seconds, and they're really going to go into hyperdrive in their spiritual life with all of these additional enhancements. Now, remember, the church age believers haven't been around for seven years, and that's you and me if we're there. We're gone with our spiritual life. Baptism of the Spirit, filling of the Spirit, and dwelling of the Spirit, that's gone. That's not going to be there during those seven years. So they're going to go from a something that's, we don't know a lot about it, but it's going to be somewhere between the Old Testament-type spiritual life and church-age spiritual life and what comes up in the millennial, what they're going to have under the, under the new covenant. So that's why I worded it this way. It provides for the regeneration of Israel and the fulfillment of all the other covenants and promises to them. So the new covenant's fulfilled, the Davidic covenant's fulfilled, and a physical presence of Jesus as the ruler of the earth. And the uh, land covenants fulfilled, and all Israel is now going to be in the land. And there are ten different provisions which are stated in these passages, and we'll kind of hit some of them as I go through. I'm not going to go through all of them. 
Uh, I've already walked us through uh, Jeremiah 31, so we'll start next time with Isaiah 61, 89. And I'm just going to hit a few passages so that we understand what what, what the characteristics of the spiritual life in the millennial kingdom is going to be like under the new covenant. And we're going to see that we don't have that today. But there are similarities and the point that is being made here from, from Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 is when the law ended, the law didn't provide any of this. It didn't provide what we have in the church age, and it doesn't, doesn't, it's not going to provide what, what's there in, under the new covenant because the law is over with, and that's the point. Father, we thank you for this uh, time to study uh, this evening, to reflect upon this, and to have our thinking uh, challenge and just how remarkable your plan is and all that you've provided for us and that, that this is truly a unique, distinct, uh, incredible age in which we live with incredible resources and spiritual assets. And all of this is designed not to uh, necessarily minimize what went on in the past or to be critical of that or just to delve into things for an intellectual basis, but to understand what little there was out before the church age and how much we have and how much we'll be held accountable for because we've been given so very, very much. And, Father, we pray that we might be steadfast and persevere in our spiritual life and spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.